it is the day after Halloween, and I gotta tell you, I'm feeling a little rough. I am. I'm so tired. I chased three six-year-old boys down the street while they stopped at every house in Center City, Philadelphia for candy. So I'm tired. I am tired. But you know what? I'm still making the podcast because today's episode is one I have been dying to get to. Dying to. And I've gotten so many notes from many, many of you who want to talk about this subject. We all want to make sure that our kids are safe online. But how do we even start to do that? The truth is that it's complicated. It's really freaking complicated. And it changes every day. If you've ever asked yourself any of the following questions, then this episode is probably for you. Is my kid addicted to their phone? Will my kids' online mistakes haunt them forever? Which apps should I be worried about? Should I monitor my kids on social media? Is someone going to send my kid inappropriate photos? Should I be talking to them about sexting? Today's guest is going to answer most of those questions for us. It is Dr. Devorah Heitner, and she's the author of Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. I had so many questions for Devorah. One of them, since my kids are still so little, is when should you get your kids a phone? And they're already asking. They're four and six. The baby can't talk, but sometimes she just looks at me and I feel like she's asking with her eyes. So we're going to get to that. See, at the end of the day, this is all on us. The tech companies are not here to protect our kids or to model good digital citizenship and habits. They're here to make money. We have to be the role models. We have to set the guidelines and to start the conversations, no matter how awkward those are going to be. And trust me, I think it's going to get kind of awkward. You are all going to want to sit down for this one or take a walk or, or, you know, that's always nice too. It's up to you. Your body, your choice. Hi. Hi. It is so good to have you on. I am obsessed with your book. The digital world is my greatest fear. After cars. I'm terrified of cars, but after cars, the growing up in the digital world terrifies me for my three children who are still very little, but also know how to access YouTube already. And I have a million questions for you. I fa- first found your book because you talked to my friend Jessica Gross at the New York Times. And the headline of her piece was The Fight for Your Kids' Brains Has Already Begun. I mean, our kids are watching us, right? And so they see how often we reach for our phones. Your toddler probably brings you your phone from the other room if you leave it behind because they see how incredibly attached you are. And touchscreens are super intuitive, so kids can start at a much younger age. You don't need to know how to read and use a keyboard, which was a huge barrier for little kids, you know, with computing and laptops, you know, even until like 10 years ago. But now we're in the sort of touchscreen world where you just touch it and it goes. And if you've ever seen a little toddler or preschooler try to touch a magazine and get it to swipe, it it shows you how incredibly intuitive it is. The fact that we expose our kids to so much of it terrifies me, but I also don't know how to back away from it. What guardrails I can put up early or what I even have, what I even have available to me. And so I'm curious, that is one, that's one of the big things that I wanted to ask you. 
And a huge thing we can do is really think about our own surveillance and our own sharing about our kids, right? One thing you can do when we're thinking about our own social media, are we making sure we get our kids consent before we share images or videos of our children? Or if they're too young to ask for consent, are we considering the later potential cringe factor and making sure we're not sharing anything that someone might tease them for or that they might really be resentful of us later for sharing? Um, you know, when I think about all your conversations about influencer families, I think every family in some sense is an influencer family if mom or dad is on Facebook or Instagram. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that all the time about the pictures and videos that I post of my kids, I post way less than I used to after working on this podcast, uh, mostly mostly out of fear. Uh, and yet there's still there's still information out there about my kids because I do talk about them and I'm a writer who talks about my life. And I I think about little I think about little things like when my daughter goes on her first date or my son goes on his first date and someone is able to Google what I wrote 15 years earlier about how hard it was to potty train them. Is that something I would want someone finding out when I was going on my first date? I mean, they couldn't, they knew nothing about me, right? Right. And the whole idea of being able to present yourself to new people in your own life is so important, especially when I think we're teenagers or emerging adults. But really throughout my life, I've wanted to have some control over that way of presenting myself. And we all choose to present ourselves differently in different contexts. And what social media does is it kind of smashes all those contexts together, including, you know, including for us, right? Like we might post and there's like a mix of our professional, personal, family folks following us. And then it's like, wait, how do I speak to these very different audiences? Whereas if I was like catching up with my family on Thanksgiving and they were like, how is your book tour? I'm going to tell different stories than if like one of my writer friends says, how is your book tour? Right? Like those are different conversations. But on my, you know, Instagram or LinkedIn, I'm going to present it in this kind of broad way that hopefully is like, okay for everyone. And frankly, less interesting. Like we can be less interesting when we're trying to speak to multiple contexts. Like if I'm having a one-to-one -one conversation or a one-to-few conversations, you know, about what's going on in the world in all different contexts, it's going to be a more interesting conversation if I'm narrowing that focus and if there's a high level of trust. And when you go to social media, you don't have a high level of trust. Someone might screenshot and try to cancel you or whatever. You have to kind of be more careful. You've been visiting a lot of schools and you, you have an older child than, than my kids. When you talk to kids about what their parents have posted, how do they feel? Like, what do they open up to you about? Because I think I think my friends who have kids who are tweens now, they never actually hear it from their kids, but their kids will talk to someone like you. So there's a real sense of betrayal sometimes or a sense of feeling less safe at home. One of the things that I've been saying for the longest, really more than 10 years since I started speaking publicly about this topic, was that we should ask our kids permission before we share. And, you know, and I'm a reformed share sharenter as well. I, until my kid was in third grade, I was sharing him and not always asking permission. So I'm like right here with you. I'm not here to like parent shame anyone. But I think what, what I learned is that kids do feel more inhibited at home. Like you take a picture of your fourth or fifth grader in their PJs with their stuffed animals, and maybe they put away their stuffed animals when they have their friends over for sleepover. 
and you just kind of exposed a part of their private life that's really not yours to expose. And then when they get on the school bus, some of their friends may have seen that image through their parents and they might get teased and that might interrupt their, you know, fourth grade street cred that they were in their footy Star Wars pajamas or had their stuffed animals. And the last thing you want to do is make your kid grow up too fast and put away their stuffed animals for good. But by exposing them to their peers, you, you might have just done right. Or your kid loves to belt out show tunes at home in their underpants. Like, why would you want to inhibit that awesome behavior? Right. That's great. But if you share the video, you might be inhibiting that behavior because the, your, your kid will experience potentially feeling exposed. Right. Family and home should be a safe space. Right. And that's why I'm so concerned about influencers who are not having any boundaries. And I think most of us who are sharing on social would say we do have boundaries. We don't share pictures of our kids we think would be embarrassing. And that's true. But I love the example of the footy pajamas, because why would you think that'd be embarrassing for a fourth grader? But you don't know what image they're trying to project at school and how that goes with the way they see themselves. So that's why, you know, I would either not take the picture at all or at least ask before I share it. Or just keep it in the family is a good compromise sometimes. Like maybe there are some sweet pictures we want to take. I, I think taking pictures of people sleeping, for example, is really violating. But I know a lot of parents love those pictures. Like if you're going to take them, at least keep them in your immediate family if you're going to take them at all. But would you want your kids taking pictures of you sleeping and putting that on TikTok? Like here's my mom sleeping on TikTok. You know, ignore <laughs> the sounds of the CPAP machine. Like, no, you would not want that. You would feel very violated by that. So I think it's important to Ask yourself if the equivalent picture was taken by someone in your family, it's you and your PJs and your partner took the picture. Would you want that on the internet without permission? You would not, right? So I think it's just important that we ask and, and that if kids are too young to ask, we err on the side of sharing less or, you know, if in doubt, don't share it out. If you think that eight-year-old's dance moves are cool now, but she might cringe later, maybe just, again, keep it in the family or keep it on a smaller share because uh, that... That you that being circumspect will never hurt you. Your kid will never be like, I'm so mad that you didn't share that with everybody, right? Because here's the thing. If your kid then becomes a dancer and wants that video and you have it, she can make her own documentary about her own life as a dancer and put that eight-year-old video in there and be like, this is part of my story. Look at these moves I was busting when I was eight. But she's not going to be mad at you that you didn't share it. So I think that's really important. And then the other thing it does is it teaches them that's how they should behave with their friends. So if you ask before you share, they realize, oh, when I take videos, when my friends come over, I should not be posting these on YouTube without checking with my friends. And that's really important yeah. so that you're, you're modeling a boundary and you're modeling a boundary that when somebody asks them, frankly, for a nude one day, which is going to happen very likely if you have kids that are growing up. Them, oh, like, oh God, nude, and they might I have know. better boundaries if they've grown up in a consent based culture being able to say no. Absolutely. And I think the big message that I love sharing with parents is that so much of this is up to us, how we model, how we use the phone, how we take pictures, how we share. They have no one else to look to. I mean, until they until their friends start using this. But when they're as young as my kids to see how 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 to do how how to how to act with these things but I think about my childhood all the time and I saw my parents reading newspapers so that's that kind of thing made me want to be a journalist same as I saw them watching the nightly news I could see what they were consuming but 
with the phones, our kids just see us staring at a screen. And I think that's what scares me so much because they just see us holding and looking at this device and they don't know what we're doing with it unless we're explaining it to them, unless we're very active uh, in talking about what we're doing and how we use this thing. Absolutely. I mean, we heard our parents on the phone as well. And so we learned a lot about communication and negotiation and navigating conflict. And our kids are watching us thumb it out. But unless we explain a decision like, oh, I'm having a hard time understanding this person and we're both getting frustrated, so I'm going to call them later and we're going to work it out. Or uh, this is really big, heavy news. I don't want to lob this news over the text transom to this person and then leave them to deal with it alone. So I'm going to wait till I see them in person to share. Those are the kinds of communication decisions we're making all the time with our experienced adult brains, with all our history of socialization. And if we don't explain that to our kids, unlike how we heard our parents on the phone, and I often picked up and heard both sides, but I certainly heard one side of every conversation that ever happened in our home. It was a small house. My parents were loud. I heard those conversations very clearly, at least one side of them. And so I learned things from that. And you don't, we're not doing enough to mentor our kids on these communication strategies and especially how to have empathy for the other people we're communicating with, remembering there's human beings on the other end of these screens. Yes, yes, yes. And that's what you talk a lot about. It's mentoring over monitoring your kids. A lot of people talk about surveillance and spying on their kids' devices. But if we're setting up those guardrails, if we are a good digital literacy mentor going into this, then do you have to surveil? Do you have to monitor as much? Ideally, we're not monitoring very much and we're monitoring more in a way that's collaborative. So say you get your kid a new device or they're in a new space, you're working on it with them, like maybe with Roblox, you're listening while they're playing with their friends without headphones and you might give them a few notes like I've occasionally held up a note on a flashcard to my kid like, hey, use a nicer tone with your friend. But, you know, I don't yell at him because that'd be embarrassing because the friends could hear. But especially when he was home in the early days of the pandemic, sort of playing more and I could hear the friends and hear my kid, I could sometimes give feedback. Um, and that's very different than covertly spying on our kids. You know, you don't want to just mirror all their texts or their geolocation to you without them knowing because that's just going to drive your kid underground. They're going to get so focused on hiding from you that it's going to likely interfere with the relationship and their ability to come to you if there is a situation in social media, on a group text, in a game that is concerning where they need your help. So I do think, you know, some of mentoring can consist of monitoring. Like say your kid gets a new phone, maybe you sit down and look at that group text with them a little together or look at their some of their early texts. Certainly, I would be very involved if my kid was getting a phone at 9, 10, 11, 12 and figuring out with them who their contacts should be, right? Kids, you know, in elementary school probably shouldn't have any contacts that at least one of their parent caregivers, you know, doesn't know, right? Like they shouldn't, like in elementary school, why should your kid be in contact with someone that you, nobody, no adult in the family knows? Like in high school, yes, of course, my kid's on the debate team. I don't know everybody, right? But that's a very different scenario, um, you know, at 14, 15 than it is at 10. So we want to start our kids with contacts that we know. So that would involve like sitting down with them, making their contacts list, et cetera. So I guess you could say that that's monitoring. But what, I, what I'm opposed to and what I think is really insidious is going kind of all NSA on your kid, having 
an app on their device where everything gets mirrored to you, which is incredibly invasive. It also, frankly, is going to give you PTSD while you relive middle school. You don't need to see everything. Oh, God. It's going to be no. a lot of time for you that you probably don't have. And your kid is going to focus on how they can get around that if you're monitoring to that degree. Um, and if you're doing it covertly, I also have to ask, like, what is your end game? Like, what will you do if you see something problematic if you're covertly monitored? <laughs> like, what's your plan? How will you talk to them about what you've seen? It will no right? longer be covert. Yeah, that's, oh gosh, this feels so far away for me. And yet it's not, it's not, it's coming for me. It is. I know that. And what about things like the 360, Life, Life 360? I'm just finding out what Life 360 is. It's one of those tracking apps. And what are your thoughts on, on putting those on kids' phones? Some families like it and they say it, you know, makes them feel closer. Um, I find it creepy and invasive. I'm like a very sort of privacy-loving Gen X person. I don't see why anyone should want to track my location. I mean, for me, a litmus test would be if your kid's romantic partner someday wanted them to get this and, you know, wanted them to get a watch or a phone to track their location, would you find that loving or creepy? Well, I Ooh. would go to creepy. Um, and I think tracking our kid's location feels creepy and also adds to anxiety sometimes because people find, you know, if somebody somehow like goes dark on the map or their phone dies, it like actually adds to anxiety or you live in a dense area and a kid goes into someplace, but it turns out to be like the adjacent place. But I do think that it's worth thinking about like, wait, why would I want to track my kid's location? And any of the instances I can think of, I would rather, you know, have him let me know where he's going and also just feel like it's also okay as he gets older for me to not know every second where he is. Like if he's out with friends, you know, in our community or you know, whatever, going out for like pizza and then a movie. I don't know if I need to know exactly like, did they leave the pizza place yet? Are they at the movies yet? Why didn't they get to the movies? Like, oh, maybe they decided to stay and just keep talking over pizza. Like, is that okay? Can I let that be? Like, do I have to text him and say like, why didn't you go to the movies yet? Like, at what point does it become invasive and controlling? And knowing that I'm already a really anxious parent and that I struggle with anxiety, I think it, it would add to my anxiety, not decrease it. Of course it would. Of course it would. Because so much can go wrong with these tracking apps. We're going to take a quick break here. When we get back, we'll talk about how our phones are making all of us, especially our kids, more anxious and even a little bit sick. And we're also going to dive into a really tricky topic, how to talk to your kids about sexting. Oh, I know. But it's a real thing. It's a real thing. I just finished ordering my whole HelloFresh spread for the week, all of my meals that I'm going to cook. If you don't know what HelloFresh is, it is farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You get to skip the trips to the grocery store and let HelloFresh just make the home cooking easy, fun, and also more affordable than takeout. Trust me. Trust me. Now, the holidays are right around the corner, and HelloFresh can actually help you take the stress out of dinner planning by delivering everything you need to cook up tasty meals right to your door. Saving you a ton of time, because you're not going to be going to the grocery store, you're not going to be waiting in that line, you're not going to be trying to figure out what to do with that third baby while the other two run around like animals, which is what I'm doing all the time. 
The holiday season is hectic. It is. It's crazy. And that is where HelloFresh's 15-minute meals come in. They are quick fixes to help you get a wholesome meal on the table in less time than it even takes you to take out your phone and order something. Here's the other thing that I'm kind of excited about. HelloFresh Market lets you order things for your holiday get-togethers. So it looks like you just made this mouth-watering charcuterie board. But no, no, it just got delivered to you and you put it out. But you don't have to tell anyone that. You never have to tell anyone that. So to support this show and skip the grocery store and have delicious meals delivered right to your doorstep, go to HelloFresh.com slash Terry free and use the code Terry free for free breakfast for life. That's one breakfast item per box while your subscription is active. Free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash Terry free with the code Terry free. That's T-E-R-R-Y-F-R-E-E. You're going to love it. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit for a reason. And we are back. We're back with author and digital safety expert, Devorah Heitner. I think we do need to talk with kids and let them observe for themselves with particular apps, maybe with particular devices. When is when this is making your life better, it's great. When it's helping your learning, helping your friendships, being fun and entertaining. But when it's taking away from things that we need to do, like sleep, for example, then it's not great. And we all need to take a break. And so kids are pretty good at noticing that over time. I had a lot of kids tell me about apps that they quit. TikTok was the most frequently quit app. That seems to be a love or hate app. There's not a lot of neutrality on TikTok among teenagers. Many of them love it. And some of them loved it enough that they felt like they had to quit. How did the kids feel when they quit? What did they tell you about that experience? They could get their work done, they could get sleep, and they they didn't miss it as much as they thought, right? Those short videos, you know, coming at you in the... And, and a lot of kids use the term addicting, which I think is so interesting because, of course, addictive is the sort of correct word, but addictive is kind of passive, like a substance is addictive. TikTok is addictive, right? Addicting almost feels like it's coming and grabbing you and like making you get addicted. So even though I resist that word a lot because clinically, you know, I have a PhD in media studies, not psychology. I'm not qualified to say anyone's addicted. Um, and really only video games are, you know, in the DSM, like there is an addiction, I think, in the DSM for video games. Um, I don't think there's TikTok addiction in there. But a lot of parents and kids will use the word addicted or addicting, and they don't necessarily mean that they have a clinical addiction or that they've been diagnosed because they probably haven't. Uh, but it does feel like it's interfering with their life. And what I would say to parents is your kid doesn't need a clinical addiction to feel like it's interfering with their life. And that, you know, you do want to intervene if you or your child feels like your devices are interfering with your life. And I have felt that at times. Like I've I've added screen time to my phone to try to encourage myself to go to bed. And obviously I have the password. I'm not going to, you know, if I want to sort of cheat on screen time and go around it, I can just turn it the heck off. But <laughs> It's a good reminder and cue for me, especially, you know, I'm on my book tour right now. I'm on these late, late nights. Like I need to get my rest. And if I'm going to be checking data or even hearing live from people, because I no, nobody knows what time zone I'm in right now. So people are like writing to me and I might be somewhere where it's, you know, midnight. They might not know that. But I don't need to have it on all the time. Right. And it's so important to be 
aware and protective of your own rest and downtime. I love that kids are recognizing that it's not good for them. And I think parents saying the things that they feel aren't good for them on their phones is also really important. Again, it's modeling. It's modeling and mentoring. The, kid, the kids will, will really take in the things that, that we're doing. What are your general non-judgmental recommendations for when kids should get a phone? Kids should get a phone when their parents need them to have one in a lot of ways and when they're doing more independent things in the world. So for us, it was when our son was going to be home alone more and we didn't have a house phone. So it was a very pragmatic safety issue. Now, you don't have to get your kid a phone and let them have it all the time, right? Or you don't have to get them a phone that does all the things. There's some starter phones on the market that just text, which is kind of great. Like giving your kid a browser and access to downloading social apps and games does really complicate things. But we do want to think about how we're treating phones like they're so necessary. We've got to be connected all the time. And if we can model that it's okay to be unreachable some of the time, our kids will also recognize that. I've had 10-year-olds say to me, is it okay if sometimes I just don't feel like being on my phone because their friends are trying to reach them? And I'm thinking, yeah, if you can't take a break in fifth grade, like you're never going to feel like you can take a break. Wow. 10-year-olds. 10-year-olds saying, is it okay to be Right, just Unreachable. turn my phone off and take a break. And I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, it is totally okay. Please go outside and play. Go play. Go play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think being unreachable is also wonderful. I mean, my God, not, let's not even bring up being unreachable once you start dating as a teenager. Please be oh, as yeah. unreachable well, as possible. Well, I think with dating, one of the tricky things that kids have to negotiate is what is my expected reachability with my sweetie, you know, for dating? because. Kids will text each other all day at school. And so kids need to learn to set boundaries, ideally before they start dating just with their friends. Like if they have a friend who's texting them too late at night or a friend who's sort of spamming on the group text or a friend who's just, you know, blowing up their phone when they can't reach them, those are boundaries. And that could be your kid. Your kid could be sort of impatiently trying to hear from their good friend and feeling frustrated. And I think because of the pandemic, especially some of us got used to being able to reach people all the time. Because people were home and, you know, maybe they weren't out as much mm -hmm. and they weren't unreachable as much. And we don't want that to be the default is expecting to sort of 24-7 responsivity. So helping kids have empathy for others is like imagining, okay, what are you doing when your friends can't reach you? Oh, okay, homework, dinner. Okay. So what do you think when you're trying to reach your friends? Like what could be going on other than like that they hate you? Because the tween brain will go to, oh, they hate me. They're not writing me back because they hate me. It's like, well, if you were still friends at lunch they probably are not writing back because they're doing their homework. You know what I mean? Like, let's go to a more likely scenario. Um, is I mean, in middle school, anything's possible. Like, yeah, maybe your friend does hate you, but it's not like not the first, the first option if you don't write right. back from someone right away. Right, exactly. And you know, they might hate you because it's middle school and they're gonna they're gonna change their mind every couple hours. And by the time you guys talk, they probably won't hate you anymore. It's also we don't want our kids like blocking each other. We don't want them screenshotting each other's foibles and mistakes. I mean, so much of what we can do by creating a consent based culture at home by asking our kids what to share also then applies in their peer groups. Like don't screenshot your friend's text without checking with them or really don't just don't screenshot their text. Don't just screenshot their text. Send that. They didn't send that for you to do that with it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And this leads us into 
territory that I think is very difficult, too, when we're talking about teenagers and sexting and nudes. And how can you talk to your kids about about these kinds of things, which are very real and just they did not exist when when I was a teenager. I'm 43 now. I think we're about the same same age ish. I think everyone's my age. That's yeah, like, I think that's something that happens when you turn 48. Yeah, I mean, I'm, aren't we I'm, all? I'm 48. So, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm definitely yeah. grew up with some of the same cultural markers. Yeah. And we would have sexted, too, in our generation had the technology been available. And I think oh, it's really totally. important to recognize that. Absolutely. So the idea that, like, kids are in some way, like, deviant or something is ridiculous. Like, anyone would have done this if they'd had the tech. But... And especially impulsively, because, you know, there's no, you know, if, if we took naughty pictures and took them to the drugstore to be developed, we had the time to think about, should I really go pick those up or do I want to just move on with my life? Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. Kids are, some kids are sending nudes. Some kids are sending other kinds of risque pictures, you know, underwear pictures, et cetera. And we live in a society with very blurry lines about what's acceptable to share. You could drive by a billboard of a model in a bra and then you tell your kid you can't take a picture of yourself in your bra or you could get arrested. And it's like, well... Why is that model not getting arrested? Like, what's going on here? So, it, it, you know, we live in a complicated society around sexuality. We're very confused about how to talk to kids about it. There's really great, safer sexting tips in my book because of two really brave researchers, Samir Hinduja and Justin Patchen, wrote safer sexting tips for teens that are they published in an academic journal. And it was brave to even go there because, of course, you can't seem like you're an adult condoning kids sexting because it's illegal in most states. It just is such tricky territory. But for sure, things like if you're going to send a new don't include your face is like not crazy to say to your kid. You can say sending nudes has legal risks, privacy risks, social risks, safety risks. I'd strongly prefer that you express your sexuality in other ways. I don't think your body there's anything wrong with your body or wanting someone else to appreciate how you look or any of that. But sending a digital image is a really risky way to kind of have that experience. And I would hope that you would find safer ways to, you know, be sexual, right? Like there's there's an argument to be made that sexting is safer sex. And yet there's also an argument to be made that it's actually safer to be with someone in person without any digital documentation. What I found is that kids really want a lot of control over some of their early sexual experiences and that some of what's happening with sexting is that kids want to be in control of the lighting, exactly how much of themselves they share. And so sexting feels like a very safe and empowering way to connect in some ways, which seems so wacky to us because we think of all the disempowering ways someone could share without consent or even weaponize an image that we've shared. But for some kids, that validation and that safety that they kind of picture coming from an image they control and that they control sort of who sees it and when, again, not thinking maybe about the fact that that could change, is empowering to them. Uh, we need to balance our conversations about sexting, like the dangers with understanding some of the reasons kids do it and make sure they understand that they have rights, that even if someone then exploits their trust and shares an image without their consent, they can come to us and we can help them navigate that situation because they continue to have privacy rights. Like even if you've sort of quote unquote made a mistake and shared an image with someone that then didn't turn out to be trustworthy, you don't lose all your rights to then be protected because that person has your image. Um, so as caregivers and as adults in, in these kids' lives, we need to make sure they know that 
even if they feel embarrassed or regretful that they've shared something, they haven't lost all their all their privacy and safety rights. Some that person can still get in big trouble for sharing that without consent. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I like that it's a conversation. I like that it's not an edict, like a list of rules, but it is a, an ongoing conversation that isn't just about the pictures, but also is about their sexuality and their and how how they want that to be. I don't know what the right word is here, but performed in the world, I guess, is a way of talking about it. It's tricky. I mean, most parents, no matter how sex positive you are, are really unprepared for this conversation. And most kids, again, even raised in a sex positive home, are not going to want to talk to parents about the sort of details of like, well, I was seeking this particular kind of validation. You know, like you you will always see your kids as adorable and they might want at a certain point to be seen as hot, for example. And like, yes. no matter what, you're not going to want to see them that way. You know, so... Mm -hmm. It's tricky because they're trying, you know, that's why the social media collapse of context is hard because they're sharing, say, even on Instagram, maybe not sexting, but like, say they're sharing a picture where they want to be seen as sexually attractive and, you know, maybe like available. And you're like, whoa, 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 that's not how I want to see my kid. Right. Mm -hmm. But you're still seeing that picture because it really wasn't there for you. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. And I think that's 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 got to be a hard part of separating yourself as a parent from the viewer of your child's social media. We're going to take a quick break here. And do you tell parents to or recommend to parents that they should follow their kids on social media? I think a lot of parents want to. I mean, I think that's a personal decision between parents and kids. Certainly some kids have second accounts that they only share with their close friends, like a spam account, or they're sharing in places like Snapchat that a lot of parents don't really understand how to use, or they're less likely to see specific images. So that's a way that kids are kind of carving out a more private space. The idea that parents are going to really follow their kids may may seem antiquated, but even so, I do often see parents and they're trying they're so hardly they're so intensely trying not to body shame like so many of my feminist mom parents will be like I don't want to body shame my kid but oh my gosh aren't they cold going out in Minnesota in that crop top at college <laughs> and like I didn't want to see that picture and I'm like well I assume they wore a coat over the crop top to the party you know and they didn't go out in the like negative 20 with just the crop top but also yeah that picture really isn't for you like I don't think you're the intended consumer of that image you know no you're um, not no you're not I was I was actually going I was going through um my old photos from college the other day for a Substack post called in praise of shitty photos because AI, AI can fix anything now they can make all photos perfect and I think the imperfect photos are so beautiful and they're just such a snapshot of actual humanity and life. And whoa, some of the outfits that I was wearing in those photos, but my parents would never see them because I was right before Facebook. But I am in essentially a bra, a skirt where you can definitely see my butt and boots that went over my knees dragging a trash can full of jungle juice down the street in January in Philadelphia. I mean, sounds like a fun day. <laughs> oh, 
I also, I looked so good. I wish I'd known how hot I was when I was 19 years old, but we never know. We never know. But also no one will see that picture because it is in a box in, in my closet. Although I might put it on my sub stack because I look awesome. I mean, yeah, I think about my bat mitzvah photos and how there's very few sort of tween and teen pictures of me. And it's just in those awkward years. And I'm like, that's okay. And some of the advice I got, you know, when I was interviewing experts for growing up in public, I talked to an eating disorder prevention specialist. And she was like, yeah, maybe less full body photos of your kids when they're in puberty. And I was like, oh, interesting. And I thought, yeah, I have like no body photos of me from that those years. Like I have my school headshots and then I have like a few pictures of me from my bat mitzvah, you know, in this horrible dress. But there's not a lot of like, you know, there's no bathing suit pictures from me at like 12 mm. or 15. And that's OK no. with me. And that's OK. Yeah. What else did the eating disorder expert talk to you about because that is such a big issue with young women and the images that they're consuming on social media. And frankly, boys too are more body conscious than they were because of seeing so many more images on social media and media in general. Like there's actually just greater body consciousness among all kids, um, which is not good. Uh, she definitely talked about puberty being a time to think about sharing more face photos. We don't, she said specifically, we don't want kids to have a lot of like micro comparisons to make because it's imperative that kids gain a significant amount of weight during puberty and the body fluctuations can be just a lot and kids can get over-focused on those mm -hmm. like micro fluctuations. And so it's, you know, better to take more clothed pictures and kind of like face pictures in those years. And again, I mean, most kids, I want to be clear that she's obviously looking at a population of kids, many of whom have EDs. And so she's going to look at what what was the, you know, triggering moments for those kids. Many kids could, you know, be on a swim team and have team photos and like be fine. So I just want to be clear that like I'm not saying like A equals B, like you take a picture of your kid in a bathing suit and suddenly they have an eating disorder. I want to be clear that all of it is like a, a there's a bunch of risk factors for any of these things. And she was just saying one risk factor you can reduce is not taking a ton of those kinds of pictures of your kid in those years and especially posting them and sort of having them out for them to micro-examine. But I want to be also clear that I'm not saying it's causal. <laughs> you know, like next, like right. if you have a beach photo of your family, I'm not saying you're giving your kid an AD. Let me be really clear about that. But I do think it's just worth thinking about reducing those risks. And, and if you see your kid really obsessing over their image or filtering, you know, using beauty filters to change how they look, um, or intensively comparing their bodies with friends' bodies on social, which social media is like designed to basically to do. Like mm -hmm. I can post a picture of me and my friend can post a picture of her and she gets 50 likes and I get 30 likes and I immediately am like, okay, I'm 20 likes less beautiful than my friend, right? It's oh. quantifiable. It's rough out there. And so we want to discourage kids from doing stuff like that. And the good news is I've seen a lot fewer kids using their Instagram grids and they're using stories more. And mm -hmm. stories are, you know, because they go away after 24 hours, they're more ephemeral. It's a bit more like Snapchat. Right. It may reduce some of that body pressure of like, how many likes does this photo get? Mm -hmm. And it, when kids are moving away from the grid uh, kind of posts, I think that's that's generally a kind of a positive thing. <laughs> they're, right. they're using social more to direct message and, and uh, other things. So I still think there's plenty of pressure and there's pressure in all these different kinds of ways. I mean, schools are also posting where all the seniors get into college, you know, 
So social media is a comparison machine and teenagers are already super wired to compare. So it's really a tough time to be using an app that is essentially a catalog of comparison. Good. Things I never thought about. My friend got 20 more likes than me. Like I was just worried if my friend got asked to the, the formal and I didn't. But counting likes feels so hard. And there's pressure, especially on girls, to do the social labor of doing the liking. A lot of girls spend time on social media just having to go and like everybody's posts and that labor. And boys talked about it, too, but they specifically mentioned girls, friends who were girls as the like people who would be mad at them if they didn't like their photo. Um, boys theoretically don't care as much. Now, if a boy makes a post and nobody likes it or responds, he's still going to feel, you know, disappointed about that. Um, but the boys almost can't admit how much they care, whereas girls even sometimes boys told me stories about girls direct messaging them to say, hey, I just posted, meaning, hey, like my post. And I'm like, oh, that's so silly. And then I'm like, no, no, I'm writing to people to try to get them to Amazon review my book. Like, that's the same freaking thing. Like, I'm doing exactly what those girls are doing. It is the same thing. And this is also a good place for us to plug your book Uh, and also to tell everyone to Amazon review it because readers, Amazon reviews and Goodreads reviews really, really help authors. So order Growing Up in Public for yourself and for a friend. And it makes a good Christmas present. And then Amazon review it and Goodreads review it. A hundred percent. But also it does make me feel a little sick to my stomach to have to like ask people for that. And there's a way that having to quantify our presence, whether it's in views, likes, reviews, it is kind of yucky. And and when we tell our kids, you know, friends are more important than followers, like I want to be sincere about that. And so it does feel weird to have to kind of then like whore myself out for reviews. It's very confusing. My kid actually oh my gosh, and I had a really I good laugh about it years ago. The first time I shared something that really, n- nothing I've ever done has gone like viral, viral. Like the kind of families you're talking about are always super viral compared to like anything yeah. authors, I think most authors experience. But when my my TEDx talk from 2012 in Naperville, like really old now, um, but when it was first shared on Upworthy and I was watching the views. And my kid was a lot younger then. And I was like, oh, I'm getting really excited. Like 40,000 people have seen my TEDx talk. And my kid was said like, oh, is that important? And I just laughed and I said, oh, not really, just kind of. No, like, I know. But I no. just wanted to like make light of it because I was like, you know, it is not that important. No, no, but it, it but it is. Oh, it's so. But it's fun. It but it's, but you want to balance that with like. But you want to yeah. balance that. I mean, I. Look, and that and that is why I just said all of the things about uh, people going and uh, Amazon reviewing your book, because I feel like a crazy sales monster whore all day long. And I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But then I love my work and I love writing books. But also and review this podcast. Right. Like go on iTunes also, and review exactly. the podcast. And so, so I, sometimes I do feel like we are living in an episode of Black Mirror where my my livelihood will depend on people liking this my next book and this podcast and i'm not i'm not doing any of this just because i love it i do love it but then i also have to pay my mortgage there's a bunch of books for young adults that i think are really interesting on this front like i really love the book eliza and her monsters oh um and that is a story about a girl who is a famous webcomic 
or has a famous webcomic, but nobody knows who she is in real life. So she's like both famous and making money, but also is has her identity secret. So she's enjoying like a regular life, but also has the benefits of celebrity. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Right. Like she's making yes. her living, yes. making her art, but then her parents unintentionally out her. Like her parents mm. don't even know that she's famous and they unintentionally out her. And it kind of blows up her life. And this is, it's a young adult novel, but I'm like, anyone could read it. But it would be a great one to read with your teenagers and have conversations about like, what does celebrity even mean? Right. Why, why would we want to be famous or not want to be famous? And I think, you know, I interviewed some kid influencers for my book and they all were very ambivalent about it. I mean, I think, you know, many of them had good things happen in their lives because of their fame, but also it's complicated. Right. Yeah. What were that's a good thing for us to to end on too. What are what were some of the things that the kid influencers told you about their relationship to both fame and then also to social media? I think the most tricky thing is most of them felt like they couldn't quit easily, even though um, I mean, one YouTube influencer I talked with extensively who did really walk away. Uh, at least for a time, did hear from her parents throughout. Like she really started her channel on her own. So she's not a family vlogger or influencer. Like she, it was her thing that was when she was 13, she started doing it. By the time she was 15, you know, she had someone handling all her sponsorships. I don't even know what that person's called. I don't know, like a broker. And she was like doing deals. Her mom worked at her private high school and she was like doing deals from her mom's car over lunch and stuff. But her mom kept saying to her throughout, you can quit at any time. Like, it's great that you're doing this. And I I'm proud of you for being an entrepreneur. I think it's cool, but also you can you can quit at any time. And I think that was really healthy in their case. Like I think the the parent did a really good job of managing her kids' fame and including also just safety, like initially reviewing the videos and making sure like their home address wasn't revealed or whatever. But nonetheless, this young woman still went to college with people knowing who she was. And again, it wasn't like being, you know, Sasha Obama going to college, but it was still there were people who had watched her channel who were then in her dorm or, you know, knew who she was. And I think dealing with that was complicated and and had had fun and not fun aspects to it. So it and it's hard to sort of walk away from and especially like there's a sense of obligation. Like at one point she took a long break and then came back and the video was like apologizing to her channel fans for the long break. And I'm thinking, you don't owe us anything. No, right? you don't apologize to me for taking a long break. Like, it's okay. Like people can love what you do, but you're not obligated to keep doing it. No, no, you're not. Oh, <sighs> I want to give that girl a hug, but I'm sure that I'm sure they're doing very well. I think having a family that always said, you know, this is great, but you're also learning a lot of skills here that are transferable. You don't have to keep making this channel. Like, you know, and this is a kid who had made enough money to pay for her own college education, which I mean, there's a way that as a parent of a 14-year-old with that expense looming, I'm like, wow, I wish my kid, you know, was like coming to me with how do I open a big bank account to save all this money to pay for college? Because we live in a society where, you know, it throws families off the cliff. And of course, you hate to think of your kid being in debt for the rest of their life. At the same time, I would never want him to be distracted that way in high school. Like, right. To be an influencer. Yeah. Like, that's not what I would want. I do think that she enjoyed it up to a point. And that's the tricky thing is like something can be really great up to a point. And it was a creative outlet. And now she's doing creative videography and other things as a business. So I think she's just like moved instead of being in front of the camera to being behind the camera. And for her, it seems like that's a healthier place to be. And that's all we want. 
we all just want to be in a healthy place. We want our kids to be in a healthy place because these phones, these devices, none of it is going anywhere. So I do genuinely believe it is up to us to figure out how we will be in in a relationship with them and how we want to model that relationship for our kids. A hundred percent. And I, I, I think it's possible. I think we've all gotten to sort of peak phone and peak social and now people are pushing back. And I also see a lot of organizations demanding change from the apps and saying to the apps, hey, if you don't do more content moderation or if you don't, you know, fix these really problematic aspects to what you offer kids, we're going to sue you. And I think that will hopefully lead to some positive changes. And that is all I've got today. God damn it. I really hope that social media just dies, just dies, just drops off the face of the earth before my kids are old enough to talk about sexting. I just... Seriously, seriously, I'm not even kidding. All right, guys, go put your phones away for the rest of the day. Take a break. Model those good habits. I mean, if you want to, before you put them away, you could leave a review for this podcast. You could subscribe to Over the Influence, the Substack, or you could order A Sicilian Inheritance and also Devorah's book, Growing Up in Public. Totally do those things if you want, but then put your phone down and go hug your kids.